Speak softly and carry a magic stick. You're listening to the Quibbler Podcast, the Harry Potter book club for diplomats. Well, I gave it a go, held out a great roll of dragon skin and said, a gift for the Gurg of the Giants. Next thing I knew, I was hanging upside down in the air by me feet. Two of his mates had grabbed me. How did you get out of that? Asked Harry. Wouldn't have done if a limp hadn't been there. She pulled out her wand and did some of the fastest spell work I've ever seen. Ruddy marvelous. I'm Heather Pricewright. And I'm Alex Dallenberg. Welcome to The Quibbler. We are continuing to read Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. This week our chapters are The Lion and the Serpent and Hagrid's Tale. So yay, Hagrid's back. This podcast will, as usual, contain spoilers for this past and future Harry Potter books, and it will contain plenty of cursing. You will also hear some adult themes. This week's adult themes are the Internet of Things, Fight Songs, Unsportsmanlike Conduct, Regicide, and Long Sabbaticals. Alex, tell us what happened this week. In this week's chapters, Dumbledore's army is going swimmingly. Everyone is hitting their performance benchmarks. In order to keep the DA secret, they hold irregular meetings at different times. So Hermione makes smart galleons that light up and get hot when the meeting time changes. So basically, the coasters from the Olive Garden. I don't get that. You know, like, you go to a chain restaurant and they hand you, like, Coasters that, like, vibrate and light up when it's time to... Oh, yeah. It's basically what they are. Yeah. So, you know. They have the same technology as TGI Fridays. (laughs) It's nice spell work, though. Instead of the serial numbers on the galleon, which indicates the goblin that cast the galleon, it shows the date and time of the next DA meeting. So that's pretty clever. We also learn that the Sorting Hat considered Hermione for Ravenclaw because of, you know, cleverness like that. But it put her in Gryffindor for, I think, pretty obvious reasons. The first Quidditch match of the season is rapidly approaching. McGonagall doesn't even give them homework because she is such a Gryffindor homer. There's lots of foul play in the hallways. It's Gryffindor versus Slytherin. So there are just, like, hexes flying back and forth. Alicia Spinnett's eyebrows grow really long because she gets hexed by some anonymous Slytherin. Ron is getting really nervous about the game, and he's getting really rattled by the Slytherin remarks, which Harry basically tunes out now because, you know, they're just not that creative. So Ron is freaking out at breakfast the day of the game. Harry notices that all the Slytherins are wearing badges with a crown on it that says Weasley is our king. That can't mean anything good. The game starts and we learn that Weasley is our king is actually a pretty hilarious song about Ron Weasley that the Slytherins have come up with. So, oh shit, they've like upped their insult game from Gryffindor are losers. So that's Slytherin's secret weapon. Rhyming couplets. <laughs> it works. <laughs> the game's a mess. The Slytherins are in Ron's head. He gives up four goals. The score is 40 to 10. So, oh shit. Slytherin only needs to score 110 more points. No, 120 more points. So, oh shit. If Slytherin scores 120 more points, they'll win, even if Harry catches the snitch. Actually, no, that would be a tie. 
Slytherin needs to score 130 more points. But, however, Harry Potter is the seeker, so obviously he catches the snitch right before Draco Malfoy. The whistle blows, but right after the whistle blows, Harry gets hit in the small of his back with an illegal bludger. You're not supposed to, like, keep hitting the bludgers after the game is over. From, it was Crab or Goyle, I don't know, they're basically the same person. Draco taunts Harry about saving Ron's neck and how Ron was born in a bin, which is from the song. He also makes fun of Harry and Ron's mothers. Harry and George go ape shit on Draco and try to like punch the living daylights out of him, but Madame Hooch intervenes. She uses the impedimenta curse on them and sends them up to McGonagall's office. McGonagall is fucking pissed. She knocks over her biscuit tin. She gives them all... <laughs> There's ginger newts all over the floor. She gives them detention. But then Professor Umbridge walks into the office and says, I don't think that's a harsh enough punishment. I think they should be banned from Quidditch for life. McGonagall thinks that's a little extreme, but Umbridge says, I can do whatever I want because I've got but 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 motherfucking educational decree number 25, which gives the Hogwarts High Inquisitor the power to levy punishments on students. Or change punishments levied by teachers. Right. So that is troubling. We also learned that Umbridge did not want to recertify the Gryffindor Quidditch team in the first place. So George and Harry have been banned for life from Quidditch and Fred for good measure for like basically because maybe he committed the thought crime of wanting to punch Draco. Haven't we all committed that thought crime? <laughs> so needless to say, it's a very glum night in the common room. Ron returns late at night, all covered in, he's just like looking very frostbitten from wandering the grounds of Hogwarts disconsolately thinking about his terrible performance in a game that Gryffindor won. So everyone is feeling very blue, but then Hermione turns from the window and says, I've got something to cheer you up, guys. But, 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 motherfucking Hagrid has returned. So the trio head down. That's two but, 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 motherfuckings, I guess. That's like making up for episodes where we did not use it. So the trio head down to Hagrid's hut under cover of the invisibility cloak. Hagrid opens the door. He's looking pretty fucked up. He basically looks like Sylvester Stallone at the end of Rocky. They want to know what Hagrid's been up to. Where has he been? Why is he back so late? What secret mission was he on? Hagrid's super reluctant to talk because it's top secret. He says, I can't tell you guys. You need to leave right now. And they do. And that's the end of the chapter. Hagrid doesn't spill all the secrets. No. Obviously, Hagrid tells everything. So Hagrid launches into Hagrid's Tale, title of the chapter, which is all about this story he told on his way to Canterbury on a pilgrimage. Um, oh my god. <laughs> Hagrid's Tale is like right after the Miller's Tale, right? Yes. Um, Actually, the Tale of the Three Brothers is from the Canterbury Tales. Whoa. So everything comes full circle. I actually haven't read the Canterbury Tales. That's you, so... I have the first 15 lines of the Canterbury Tales memorized in Middle English. Wait, can you do it? 
One that's April with her sure assault, the draught of March hath pierced to the rota, and bothered every vine in switch liqueur of which virtue engendered is the flora, and Zephyrus eck with his sweat of breath, in spirit hath in every holt and hath the tender croppus unto the younger son, hath in their ram his havoc horsey runner, and small of foolish mock and melodia, that slept in all the night with open ear. So pricketh hem nature and her courages, than long and folk to go on pilgrimages, especially from every sheer's end of Engelund to Canterbury thy wend, the holy blissful martyr for to Seca, that hem hath holpen one that thy were Seca. Wow. Um, that was without notes, folks. A lot of you are going to, I think probably there are people that listen to this podcast that are going to be able to correct my dismal Middle English pronunciation. It's been a long time since I was in college, but yes. I do have those lines of the Canterbury Tales memorized. Yes. So we have Hagrid's tale, the missing Canterbury tale, (laughs) which is, of course, about how he and Olympia Maxime, Madame Maxime, to uh, those who aren't on first name basis with her, went to the mountains of, it seems like the Caucasus or something like that, to do some high-stakes diplomacy on behalf of Dumbledore with the Giants. They're there to try to bring the Giants over to the side of good. They come bearing gifts from Albus Dumbledore, including some everlasting fire and a pretty sweet goblin-made helmets to offer to Carcass, who is the chief of what seems to be the remnants of the Giants on Earth. So... They are successful at first, but then one night there's like a massive giant battle because giants are kind of riven by tribal infighting and a new giant has taken over as the giant chief, which is called the Gurg. It's this pretty gnarly giant named Golgamoth. So suddenly their mission goes from diplomacy to counterinsurgency, and they are like courting anti-Golgamoth factions within the giants to try to like get them to join the side of, not the ministry, but Dumbledore, like the Order of the Phoenix, the side of the Order of the Phoenix. And that seems like sort of promising, Although the anti-Golgamoth faction is pretty worse for wear, but then all those anti-Golgamoth giants end up getting killed. Also, the Death Eaters are among the giants, and they seem to have pretty much won over Golgamoth. That still doesn't explain how Hagrid's face got so messed up. Ron asks, who attacked you? But then they're interrupted by a rapping at the door. It's Dolores Umbridge, come to see what's up with Hagrid. So the trio hides under an invisibility cloak. Umbridge comes in. She interrogates Hagrid about where he's been and what he's been up to. She seems to know that he's been off in the mountains. Hagrid offers some pretty implausible excuses about tripping over a broom and hurting his face and says he's been in the south of France, which is sort of true. They went through Dijon. Hagrid also hilariously says... Not to be rude, but who the hell are you? <laughs> like, what is going on here? I've been away from school too long. Anyway, Umbridge says that they'll be meeting again because she's Hogwarts High Inquisitor and it's her job to inspect the teachers. So she leaves. Hagrid's like, whoa, there are inspections this year? That's crazy, but everything should be fine because I've got some awesome lessons planned with some yet-to-be-named creatures that are super cool. So Hermione pleads with Hagrid to please just teach something boring that will show up on the OWLs. And as they're leaving Hagrid's hut because he wants to turn in for the night, 
Hermione says that she will plan Hagrid's lessons for him herself if it means protecting him from Umbridge because she can get rid of Trelawney if she wants, but they will not allow her to get rid of Hagrid. And that's what happens in this week's chapters. So we're playing Quidditch again. <laughs> God, it was such a mercy. As much of a mess as book four was, I was so relieved to have so little Quidditch in it. And now we're back and... I just find these chapters so excruciatingly boring. I just find chapters that are comprised of just one full Quidditch match and change to be excruciatingly boring. And this one is no exception. <laughs> it is so long. It is way too much detail. I don't need the play-by-play, -play, the literal play-by-play -play from Lee Jordan. Lee Jordan is great! I know, but he's telling me who has the quaffle. I'm bored. <laughs> I don't care. This sport is useless. And it's Johnson Johnson with the quaffle. What a player that girl is. I've been saying it for years, but she still won't go out with me. Jordan, yelled Professor McGonagall. Just a fun fact, Professor, as a bit of interest. And she's Duck Warrington. She's past Montague. She's, ouch, been hit from behind by a bludger from Crab. Montague catches the quaffle. Montague heading back up the pitch. And nice bludger there from George Weasley. That's a bludger to the head for Montague. He drops the quaffle. Caught by Katie Bell. Katie Bell of Gryffindor reverse passes to Alicia Spinnet. And Spinnet's away. One thing I like about this chapter, and that was my first reaction to it. I was like, I don't know how much work this chapter is doing in terms of the narrative. But then I thought about it a little more, and it's just a vehicle to show Umbridge's increasing abuses, right? And I think it's important to have Quidditch kind of tied into that, because it's one of Harry's escapes, but even Quidditch is being politicized now. Even before the match, the whole game is sort of shot through with dread, because there's foul play in the corridors you know like it seems like the rivalry is getting more intense between Slytherin and Gryffindor like Alicia gets put in the hospital wing even before the game starts Ron is clearly like very freaked out the Slytherins have seriously upped their insult game part of that I think is because the Slytherins are really emboldened by Professor Umbridge yeah mm -hmm. she is showing pretty bold partisanship I think it's pretty common knowledge that she didn't want Gryffindor Quidditch to be able to reform at all and that Dumbledore had to intervene that's something we found out in the last chapter so the Slytherins are like they know that they essentially have carte blanche to like fuck with Harry Potter and a not insignificant number of them are perfectly aware that Voldemort is back that's true because their parents were in are, that graveyard fucking death eaters so yeah they're it's kind of surprising that they're not just chanting low vo, low vo at, <laughs> at the game. So, yeah, I like that Harry's places of refuge are being progressively stripped away from him in this book. And even though, you know, Quidditch is like tough and there's always been this rivalry with the Slytherins, you know, like there's always been trash talk on game days. There's a more malicious edge to it in this chapter. So... I liked that aspect of the game. Yeah, I agree with all that. I just think that you could probably do that with a Quidditch scene that was an eighth as long. <laughs> and you wouldn't have to just read whatever. Quidditch play-by-plays? Transcripts of Quidditch play-by-plays? Yeah. <laughs> um, the other thing that this chapter does is it really 
highlights the pure nonsensicality of Quidditch the game because it's trying to tell this story about Ron's feelings of inadequacy and how easily rattled he is and it's supposed to be a chapter really about Ron but Ron is fucking meaningless in a Quidditch game. Yeah it's hard to get invested in Ron's struggles when Ron only has to stop 16 goals from going in basically you know anything below that counts as a victory also no one is going to blame ron if they lose because that's clearly on harry potter yeah so that sort of weighs down what rowling's trying to do here but whatever it's just like the stakes are really stupid because i don't care that ron isn't a good quidditch player a because I can't stand reading about Quidditch. (laughs) But B, and more importantly, because it doesn't matter if Ron is a bad Quidditch player. And the fact that the Slytherins glom on to Ron is like, I get it. They are really successful at identifying like the weak link in the Gryffindor Quidditch team. And they're sort of like full bore anti-Ron Weasley campaign is effective in the way they want it to be. But it's like, you guys... It doesn't fucking matter. What you should actually be trying to do is incapacitate Harry Potter because then Gryffindor Quidditch can never win. (laughs) Harry's the best seeker in the long history of Hogwarts Quidditch, nearly. And it just doesn't matter if Ron is a bad keeper. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Quidditch can only be used to develop Harry Potter's character. It Mm. can apply to almost no one else. No. And... It's just this hilarious moment when Harry is kind of like tallying up the score and like figuring out like what needs to happen. (laughs) He's like, okay, great. We're only down by 30. Only 30 is fine. And it's like, yeah, bro. If you don't find the snitch in like six hours, then maybe you'll be in trouble. But beyond that, you're good. You're fine. 30 Um, points means nothing. They really should teach math at Hogwarts. They should. (laughs) He's like, what's 150 minus 30? Oh, that's like 12 goals. Okay, we've got a while. It's like in Watership Down where the rabbits can only count to five. So anything beyond that is just like, I don't fucking know. (laughs) Watership Down reference. Yeah. That was pretty good. All that being said... I feel like a miserable person because of this, but I love the Weasley is our king song. I think it's hilarious. Lee Jordan's commentary rang through the stadium, and Harry listened as hard as he could through the wind whistling in his ears and the din of the crowd all yelling and booing and singing. Dodges Warrington, avoids a bludger, close call, Alicia. And the crowd are loving this. Just listen to them. What's that they're singing? And as Lee paused to listen, the song rose loud and clear from the sea of green and silver in the Slytherin section of the stands. Weasley cannot save a thing, he cannot block a single ring. That's why Slytherins all sing, Weasley is our king. Weasley was born in a bin, he always lets the quaffle in. Weasley will make sure we win, Weasley is our king. Finally, Draco has done something actually witty. Yeah, Draco has, and Pansy Parkinson, like, conducting the entire Slytherin sharing section is a hilarious image. (laughs) I really find this to be, I mean, it's infuriating and you feel for Ron, but it is a very funny scene to me. The funniest part, I think, is when nearly headless Nick is just drifting through the Hogwarts corridor, sort of idly humming it to himself because it's got, it's stuck in his ghost head. It's catchy. I like when it says Ron was born in a bin. That's just like, it doesn't even feel that mean. It's just like 
cheeky, whatever. Rhymes with in. Yeah. So I hate to give the Slytherins any props, but this is like a pretty effective campaign overall. They have like matching buttons. They've all learned this song. Like they've gotten pretty organized. They've been honing their trolling skills for years. It's true. With the Potter Stinks badges, way better than the Potter Stinks badges. Oh, much funnier than Potter Stinks because it's like psychological, like it's like reverse psychology in this funny way because to like an outsider, Weasley as our king might look like they were fans of Ron Weasley. So you have this like curiosity of like, oh God, what could that possibly mean? (laughs) It's pretty good. Who makes all these badges? Somebody has a lot of time on their hands. Yeah, it's definitely not Crab and Goyle. No, I bet it's Pansy. Yeah, that would make sense. Or Draco is just really into crafting. And that's a sign sign of Draco we've just never seen. Or it's a Slytherin first year who's been like pressed into service making badges. That seems like the most likely possibility. So the important part of this chapter is this fucking punishment from Umbridge. She bans George, Fred, and Harry from Quidditch for life. Yeah, can she do that? What the fuck does a lifetime ban mean? Like, how does she enforce it? Does this apply to, like, professional Quidditch? I was going to say collegiate Quidditch, but there's no college in the wizarding world. Does this apply to just, like, playing with your friends? Like, has he, like, literally never allowed on a broom with a snitch again? I have no idea how it works. It's uh, overstep, to say the least. (laughs) Umbridge is also just progressively getting worse and worse. She started at a 13 and is now at like 17 for just being terrible. On a scale of 1 to 10, is that what you mean? Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, these are arbitrary numbers. (laughs) Um, Speaking of not being able to count. (laughs) Well, it's like... You said it in the summary. She's just finding everything that Harry Potter wants, cares about, feels solace in, thinks is important, and just like taking it away from him. It's like a one woman torture campaign. It's so crazy. She's just like, how can I make this little boy's life the worst life it has the possibility of being? And let me spend... All of this power and all of this time and basically use every resource at my disposal to like ruin the life of this one child. It's disturbing. (laughs) Educational decree number 25. Not another one, exclaimed Professor McGonagall violently. Well, yes, said Umbridge, still smiling. As a matter of fact, Minerva, it was you who made me see that we needed a further amendment. You remember how you overrode me when I was unwilling to allow the Gryffindor Quidditch team to reform? How you took the case to Dumbledore, who insisted that the team be allowed to play? Well, now, I couldn't have that. I contacted the minister at once, and he quite agreed with me that the High Inquisitor has to have the power to strip pupils of privileges, or she, that is to say I, would have less authority than common teachers. And you see now, don't you, Minerva, how right I was in attempting to stop the Gryffindor team reforming. Dreadful tempers. Anyway, I was reading out our amendment. (laughs) The High Inquisitor will henceforth have supreme authority over all punishments, sanctions, and removal of privileges pertaining to the students of Hogwarts. And the power to alter such punishments, sanctions, and removals of privileges 
as may have been ordered by other staff members. Signed, Cornelius Fudge, Minister of Magic, Order of Merlin, First Class, etc., etc. She rolled up the parchment and put it back into her handbag, still smiling. So, I really think I will have to ban these two from playing Quidditch ever again. It's really scary for me to watch McGonagall lose power because she's someone that I just like rely on as kind of like a signpost in these books of trustworthiness and like the adult in the room and somebody that can like put shit right like much more than Dumbledore and so when she's just kind of sputtering and Umbridge is showing her the new educational decree and she's like I'm sorry Minerva you actually gave me the idea you don't have any power now bitch I'm just like no if McGonagall has no power we're screwed we're so screwed nothing good can come it's real bad but to be fair (laughs) Umbridge's punishment is appalling so are harry and george's little performances yeah guys don't take the bait it's even it's stupid bait he's like your mom smells (laughs) and it's just like just give it a minute and there are so many women doing so much fucking work to protect men from themselves in this scene all three female chasers are like trying to keep fred from going at Malfoy. Meanwhile, Harry is the one in charge of keeping George from going at Malfoy. And of course, Harry's temper is worse than any of the rest of theirs combined. Because Voldemort kind of lives in his head. Yeah, so you're right. It's not all the way Harry's fault. George should get it the fuck together, that's for sure. The twins are like grown-ass men at this point. This is like, uh, losing teams do this. They try to bait you guys. You should know better. This is like Robert Ory checking Steve Nash into the scorer's table in the Western Conference semifinals back when the Phoenix Suns were actually good. And then Amari Stoudemire and Boris Diaw get suspended for leaving the bench because they're pissed. I have no idea what Uh, you're talking about. Phoenix Suns fans will know this. All, like, probably five of them listening to this podcast, if that. It's something I'm still upset about. Uh, YouTube it, if you're curious. But whatever. Uh, same principle. Come on. Just, like, try to control your tempers, you guys. And everybody has been telling Harry, like, Umbridge is doing this on purpose. Mm -hmm. She is making sure that everyone sees you as, like, irrational and crazy. Well, that's why McGonagall's so pissed, because she's like, I cannot protect you if you're not making smart decisions. You cannot give these people a reason to come after you because like, they'll he's take not anything they can trying. get i know i know he's trying i know yeah he's, he's trying. trying but i'm mostly i guess i'm more annoyed at the twins i'm like you guys like you should just laugh at this this is objectively pretty funny just chill yeah it's uh it's weird to see the twins get rattled i know because they're usually pretty unflappable especially it's a dumb insult it's like i don't know I guess the Weasleys are really kind of like on edge about their family loyalty these days because of Percy and just because like everybody's on edge about fucking everything. Yeah. I am glad that this is the worst thing that happens to the twins in these books, though. It'd be way worse if something else happened. I wish you would stop doing that. <laughs> you are sending my stomach just like plummeting. Um, I'd be so fucking pissed if I were Angelina. Oh, man. She is having a rough year as the Quidditch captain. She is trying really, really hard to keep this team, like, on the straight and narrow. And she's just, like, 
She can't control these stupid boys. <laughs> Ron can't get out of his own fucking ass. Like, just, oh, boys. Boys. That was frustrating, but as Hermione says, there's something in these chapters that can cheer us all up. Hagrid is back, and he's playing it just as close to the vest as he always does. Oh, yeah, no secrets whatsoever. Very, uh. very chill. I missed Hagrid. He's a wonderful character. And, God, he just is leakier than a colander. <laughs> but... He's like a submarine with a screen door. <laughs> Never heard that expression. But he is an adult that, like, just likes Harry and Ron and Hermione. And is just, like, nice to them and chill with them. And makes them feel safe and seen he's so kind he's so kind and he's so funny he has this giant slab of like greenish dragon's meat like dripping into his beard and it's so disgusting and so endearing i got a question about dragon meat sure aren't dragons like kind of endangered Hagrid gets his hands on some shady shit but everyone has like dragon hide gloves and stuff too and they use like dragon materials and potions Maybe that's why they're endangered. <laughs> or uh, maybe they're like farmed somewhere. Like, oh man, wouldn't that be a crazy job? Dragon farming? Yeah. Are, are, are there like domesticated dragons? Can you go buy like a pound of free range dragon meat? Like, well, you're not at the supposed Wizard to eat Whole it. Foods? Oh yeah. You just treat like black eyes with it, yeah. I guess. Yeah. It's like wound care. <laughs> Fucking dragon meat. Anyway, that's all. Uh, just was curious about that, how the agriculture there works. Setting aside questions about dragon meat, let's get into the meat of Hagrid's tale. He spins a pretty exciting yarn here. You know, we don't get off the Hogwarts campus that often for some of the, well, we do for the entirety of Book 7, which is another problem, but it's cool to go on this rambling backpacking trip adventure with Hagrid and Madame Maxime. One of my questions is, like, I'm not really clear what exactly they're recruiting the giants for. Because Ron is like, oh, so are there giants coming? And Hagrid's very sadly like, no, no giants coming. And it's like, giants coming to what? Like, <laughs> we're not in open war yet. It would be really conspicuous if a bunch of giants showed up at, like, Grimmauld Place. Yeah, I don't where, really where know. Where would you put them? I don't really know what this mission, like, What's the mission here? I think they're trying to make inroads to keep the giants out of this conflict. It's less like trying to recruit giant soldiers, although that's an option, possibly, if it comes to that. But mostly they don't want Lovo and company to have giants in their ranks for the big war. Yeah. So it's sort of this like wizarding Cold War diplomacy. Like, there's no open hostilities yet, but... They're trying to bring the giants into the Order of the Phoenix, like, block or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I guess I get that. I just, Hagrid seems like the wrong person to be doing that kind of fairly delicate diplomacy. <laughs> High-level diplomacy. But Hagrid and Madame Maxime have giant connections. They're, like, in a way, the best people to send. I mean, it's obvious why they get sent. Like, I'm not asking that question. I'm just wondering if Hagrid's sort of, like, Hagrid is not... The most delicate communicator. I would trust Hagrid 
with my life. I trust Hagrid with my life too. I don't know but that not I, my secrets. I would not trust him with my secrets. I don't know that I trust Hagrid with my um, diplomatic relations. No, frankly, Hagrid has the most empathy with non-humans. Yes, he understands giant culture much better than all. Who, who the fuck else is he going to send? Is he going to send Sirius Black? Well, I mean, part of the problem with the Order of the Phoenix is, like, the bench is kind of short. Yeah. For people who can, like, do kind of, like, high-level tasks. It's a lot of <laughs> pretty rogue agents. Um, No, and Hagrid actually does a really, really good job in this. Mm-hmm. And it's really a bummer that they lose all the progress they've made because one giant faction beheads the king of the other giant faction. There are some crazy giant politics going on here. There really are. Big problems in giant land. Hagrid paused for a long draught of tea. Go on, said Harry urgently. Found him, said Hagrid boldly. Went over a ridge one night and there they was, spread out underneath us. Little fires burning below and huge shadows. It was like watching bits of the mountain moving. How big are they? asked Ron in a hushed voice. About twenty feet, said Hagrid casually. Some of the bigger ones might have been twenty-five. And how many were there? asked Harry. I reckon about seventy or eighty, said Hagrid. Is that all? said Hermione. Yep, said Hagrid sadly, eighty left, and there was loads once, must have been a hundred different tribes from all over the world, but they've been dying out for ages. Wizards killed a few, of course, but mostly they killed each other, and now they're dying out faster than ever. They're not made to live bunched up together like that. Dumbledore says it's our fault. It was the wizards who forced them to go and make them live a good long way from us, and they had no choice but to stick together for their own protection. So, there are some kind of striking parallels in how she writes about giants to white Western treatment of indigenous populations on their, like, native lands, because there's this whole description of how giants like the reason that they're dying out is partly because wizards have killed them but partly because wizards have driven them so far from their sort of like nomadic kind of far apart ancestral homeland and like put them on like increasingly smaller and smaller little parcels of yeah it seems like they're on a reservation it almost. feels reservation e and it's very remote and haggard explains that giants aren't supposed to live that close to each other and it's causing a lot of like tribal conflict because it's not their like their preferred way of life so it's like flaring up all these kind of intergiant like tribalist tensions yeah they've erased like the political distinctions that have governed giant life for centuries and kind of imposed these arbitrary groupings that don't work and i do think there's like a pretty challenging kind of like savage narrative here yeah with the going to the gurg with like the the gifts of especially the gift of fire that is very like there's like some promethean shit going on there fire's like a civilizing gift right symbolically So, 
And I'm wondering if J.K. Rowling is kind of playing with those tropes subversively or if she's just sort of playing into them. That's always my question. Yeah, how much is intentional and how much is just unintentional with Rowling's writing? Because the other thing that makes me uncomfortable, not makes me uncomfortable, the other thing that I feel like is kind of a parallel to definitely in the U.S., the history of white folks' relationship with indigenous folks is kind of using them as a pawn in a war that, like, isn't at all theirs. So both sides of this war are gonna are trying to, like, rile up the giants to get them on their side it's when like, this just isn't the giants' conflict at all. Neither side is offering them what it would actually make sense for the giants to fight for, which is, like freedom and the ability to live independently from and equally to wizards so like why should the giants be on either side of this conflict they're just being like used it's very like french and indian war to me right but i mean i don't know if the giants are totally pawns or have no stakes in this fight they seem to be torn about where they stand because in some ways the death eaters are offering them a better deal right which is they can do whatever the fuck they want they don't have to be bound by this weird wizarding statute of secrecy which demands that they stay out of sight of the muggles that dominate the planet you know and the the wizard like what are what is dumbledore offering them that's better than what the Death Eaters are offering them. Well, yeah, I mean, that's my question. I don't know what Dumbledore is offering them, period. Dumbledore treats creatures who are non-wizard better than Voldemort treats creatures who are non-wizard. Ultimately, I think a world in which Dumbledore's side wins is, like, theoretically a safer and better world for the Giants. But in reality, I don't think that's true. I don't think either side is offering them shit. I think they're trying to ensnare them in this conflict that they have, they they stand to gain essentially nothing from regardless of what side wins. Like Dumbledore isn't going to remake giant human relations. Right. Like he has no intention of that being the main thrust of this conflict. He's also failed in the past. I mean, they mentioned Dumbledore advocating for the protection of the last giants in Britain, but of course Dumbledore is overruled. Yeah. So, I don't know. Dumbledore definitely has a case to make. A decent case, because Voldemort might offer you short-term benefits, but he's clearly just seeking dominion, you know? He's a bad long-term ally. But I think... I think Lovo could say the same thing about Dumbledore. Dumbledore is a pretty unsuccessful long-term ally for a lot of these creatures. Yeah. I think if I were the Giants, I would stay in kind of an isolationist stance in this particular conflict. But I... It's not their fight. One more thought about whether the Giants have anything to gain. It's like hard for them to stay out of it either because they know somebody's going to win. And you want to like, you want to back the winning horse, right? I guess I just, I have a hard time imagining that this war is going to have any material impact on how the Giants lives and culture go. Right. At the end of the day, it's all wizards. Yeah, at the end of the day, it's all wizards, and I can't see Hagrid or Dumbledore offering a particularly good reason other than, like, do the right thing <laughs> to side with them. I don't I don't think they're making a particularly compelling case to the Giants, except that 
they're sort of like the good guys. Yeah. Hagrid's pitches. They're called Death Eaters. They and eat death. The they're scary sounding. Gurg is like, hell yeah. Me too. <laughs> That's like my deal also. I just beheaded someone. Like for fun. Oh man. This fucking high politics in the wizarding world. It's yeah, crazy. Yeah, it's really complicated diplomacy and it's cross-species diplomacy, which is like a whole other ball game that like we don't have to deal with in the muggle world. That's the other weird thing. They are kind of depicted as... Like subhuman. Like subhuman, which I don't know. Is that troubling? It's hard to say. I mean, on some, in some ways, it's just a fantasy novel. Right. and Like they aren't humans. They're other creatures. Right. You know? But I do find just some like, some challenging parallels to how the white Western canon has depicted indigenous people. Yeah, no, I mean, some of this feels like very heart of darkness, right? Yeah. And just because you don't understand how their culture functions doesn't mean that their culture is like non-functional. And Hagrid has a little bit more of a heart for that and like feels at least sadness that their living conditions have forced them to basically like kill each other off like he's like this is just how their culture functions and we've put them in a position where they're kind of like self-annihilating like that wouldn't be that way without the forces of the wizarding world kind of applied to them but even Hagrid is kind of like ah, eh, they just murder each other but again it's also just like this is a kind of a fantasy trope and this is how Lots of creatures are depicted in this kind of novel. So, you know, lots of people will say we're, like, making too big a thing of it. Fee-fi-fo-fum. So then we hear this whole great story. And then Umbridge shows up. Of fucking course. Because Umbridge is everywhere. And the main thrust of this book is, like, you can't hide from this bitch. (laughs) Umbridge showing up in this scene, for me, captures the feeling of instability that I have throughout reading this book. Because you're constantly just like, she's going to come and ruin everything. You have this like unstable element in this story that just like its whole goal is to just wreck shit. Mm -hmm. And it's so upsetting when you see her like squat little toad shadow outside of the door. And they're like, ah, fuck, we can't be anywhere. Just goddamn, yeah, can't be in Hagrid's hut. You can't be by the fire. You can't be playing Quidditch. You can't do shit. Umbridge will find you. Yeah, and poor Hagrid really doesn't get it. He knows he has to play it cool, but then she leaves and immediately Hagrid talks about his lessons. Like, he hasn't quite read between the lines on what Umbridge's presence means. I mean, even, like, he greets her, no offense, but who the bloody hell are you? And it's like, (laughs) be cool, friend. Hey, Hagrid should have worked on a better cover story before coming back. I don't understand why Hagrid didn't spend his hours and hours alone trying to, like, tame his giant brother, figuring out, what am I going to tell people when they see my, like, meat face? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Like, I tripped on a broom? Come on, dude. Crazy. And then he, like, starts talking about this, like, herd of winged horses that is, like, his buddy has, and you're like, what are you talking about right now? (laughs) He barely has a cover story for why he was in Eastern Europe dealing with giants for months. Yeah. So, I don't know, man. Come on, Hagrid. Uh, You're a terrible spy. 
He's a really uniquely bad spy. <laughs> yeah, Dumbledore giving him this assignment makes sense in a lot of ways, but it's also like, I love Hagrid. I love Hagrid so much, but like, you can't give him secret shit to do, Dumbledore. He like, immediately tells Harry Potter everything. Uh, I mean... Dumbledore knows that's a risk, and it might be his way of keeping Harry informed via, like, a back channel. I Hagrid's guess. just, like, a human back channel <laughs> to feeding Harry Potter information. Who's your unsung hero? My unsung hero is Luna Lovegood, who goes into mascot mode. She wears this crazy giant lion on her head that roars. It's amazing. And I, I just love mascots in general, so I'm What's all your favorite that. mascot? The Phoenix Suns Gorilla. A lot of Phoenix Suns on this podcast. That's really your favorite? Yeah, the Phoenix Suns Gorilla is amazing. There's a guy in a gorilla costume that jumps on trampolines and dunks basketballs. And when I was a kid, I thought for a minute that it was a real gorilla that they had trained to do basketball tricks. Oh my god. It's in the Mascot Hall of Fame. Go. His name is Go. The Phoenix Suns Gorilla. Uh, his name is Go? Yeah. Go the Gorilla. That's... That's a little silly. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's a mascot. It's whimsical. It's supposed. To, it's a basketball playing gorilla. Um. The Phoenix the, Suns gorilla is my Patronus this week. The I've only, decided. the only truly good mascot in professional sports is the Philly Fanatic. The Philly Fanatic's really good. The Philly Fanatic is just a Muppet monster. <laughs> what is that thing? It it's was a fanatic. It was made by the Muppet creators. Yeah, one of them. There's a really good 99% invisible about. The creation of the Philly Fanatic, and also Yuppie, who was the Montreal Expos mascot. But I think since the Expos moved, they've like moved him over to the Montreal Canadiens. Anyway, everybody go just like Google pictures of the Philly Fanatic every time you're feeling bummed out because he is my favorite friend. He's whimsical AF. Um, there's also a really good onion character based on the Philly Fanatic. <laughs> like the, the onion has a lot of excellent Philly Fanatic headlines. Anyway, my unsung hero is Madame Maxime. Well, my number one unsung hero is the Philly Fanatic. My number two <laughs> unsung hero is Madame Maxime. I'm not even a Philly fan, you guys. Like, I actually don't think I could tell you what sports team the Philly Fanatic is the mascot of. The is Phillies. it the Phillies? Yes, it's the Philadelphia Phillies. Is that a basketball team? No, it's a baseball team. Okay, I just like the you know Muppet. The Phillies? I do know the Phillies. I just like the Muppet. <laughs> All mascots should be Muppets. Anyway, my actual unsung hero is Madame Maxime, who goes on this swashbuckling adventure with Hagrid. She performs some pretty badass magic to get him out of tight situations. And she, despite being extremely elegant and cultured and beautiful, can like rough it big time. She has no problem going on this crazy Hagrid-inspired camping trip. It takes them a month to get back into those mountains. They're like doing it in caves. Whoa, do we know that? I would assume, yeah. right? That's why Hagrid couldn't come up with a cover story. He was busy. Yeah, I just think Madame Maxime is a really good companion for Hagrid. I'm really glad she was there on this journey because he clearly couldn't do it alone. And a badass. And a total badass. Well, she's bigger than Hagrid, right? She is yeah. bigger than him. And she also probably, when they were actually in France, was the one that, like, knew, like, the good restaurants to go to. <laughs> and, like, how to, like, you know, dress like a French woman and shit. Use the metro. Exactly. She's very glamorous. No, the metro's not glamorous. They're gonna take, like, a horse-drawn carriage. It's Madame Maxime. She's so classy. Fair enough. 
This week's episode is brought to you by Dragon Meat. It's not what's for dinner. <laughs> the audiobook clips that you heard are courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio. They are from Jim Dale's performance of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix by J.K. Rowling. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you do that, Apple Podcasts or elsewhere. We would love it if you would also rate and review us on your favorite podcast subscription site. We always appreciate that. And you can find us on various social media platforms. We are at Quibbler Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And you can get our newsletter, which is chock full of owl news, book recommendations, other good shit, Harry Potter related stuff too, but um, <laughs> it's it's a it's eclectic. It's the very word is eclectic. It's true. Um, so that is tinyletter.com slash quibbler podcast. We don't send it out that often. We're trying to do it a little more often, but we promise we won't clog your inboxes. Next week, we will be doing an owl post episode because Alex and I are going on a little vacation. So we're going to take a minute off from the book. The week after that, we will be reading the chapters called The Eye of the Snake and St. Mungo's Hospital for Magical Maladies and Injuries. Thanks. Amigos. May I help, Professor McGonagall? Asked Professor Umbridge in her most poisonously sweet voice. Blood rushed into Professor McGonagall's face. Oh no, God! No, God, please, no! No! No!